0: one of the fundamental subjects or areas within the <coughs> question of the discovering defining the spiritual path is a question of question of silence Let's see if we could try to... See, the problem with the subject is that in order to study this area of inner depth, which is also involved with communication, the problem is that this is an area, the area of inner, of inner content, inner depth, which is cultivated only by learning to be silent is that to convey that subject is by definition impossible to put into words. And therefore the exercise that we need to go through in order to study it is a very clumsy and paradoxical exercise. The, 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 the central concept here is that the things that are genuinely meaningful and the primary obligation of developing within a spiritual medium or mode is in that area where there are no words, and therefore the exercise of conveying this um, this area is fraught with difficulty, and it is inherently paradoxical. We do it anyway because it is possible. It's possible not to communicate the information that, by definition, is impossible, but it's possible to absorb the information. <coughs> That means that the, the, there is a pathway by which one can communicate certain information by not saying it, which means all the work is done by the listener. sources that talk about it, indicates by means of misholim analogies or allegories, since those really are the only tools. If you can't say the thing, all you can ever hope to do is say something that is parallel or that reflects somehow the thing, but by means of using those tools... by means of using those tools the idea conveyed is that when you need to communicate something that can't be said but you can clumsily get the listener or the student close enough that eventually they fall in by themselves and then then all the discussion becomes unnecessary let's use an analogy for this process <coughs> if you are trying to convey a skill Or a knack. So no amount of words can convey that. The nuances of the style that are involved in doing an action that has to be done. For example, say riding a bicycle. You can't put into words, you can never teach, you can't teach someone how to ride a bicycle. No matter how articulate you are and how long you speak, you can't teach someone to ride a bicycle by any amount of communication. Even graphically, even demonstrations not good enough. what you can do is you can clumsily get them close enough. When you are trying to teach this person to ride a bicycle, there's only one methodology that's available. And that is that you clumsily get them close enough that they will sooner or later get it by accident, by themselves. You hold them and you support them and you do it artificially and clumsily until sooner or later by some some miracle. They pick up what's meant, and then they can't believe that it took you so long to explain, and that you were so inadequate in your explanation, and so clumsy because it's so self-evident, so obvious. But it's only obvious after you've fallen in. The Rebbe can take the Talmud and he can push him. The master can take the disciple and push him over the edge. He can't. That's all that can happen. Then he has to fall in on his own, and then the words become completely unnecessary. The ideas become become so essential and so intrinsic to the to the inner being they become so so simple that they don't need any communication. But until then they're completely closed. But they can't be put into words. <coughs> you know the, I mean let's 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 come a little closer to home and see if we can understand one more a closer analogy. You know the Kabbalistic area the world of Kabbalah, the world of that received mystical tradition. That is known, the technical word for that in Torah is sod. Sod means a secret. Sod means that which is beyond the conscious expression. Sod in Hebrew adds up to 70, which is the same as ya'in, which means wine. And the sages say that when wine goes in, the secret comes out. Meaning, in a deeper sense, that wine is the access, the avenue of access to that which is locked within. It's dangerous, it's dangerous. If it's used incorrectly, it doesn't do the job. And if it's used excessively, then it produces an even more inarticulate silence. But used exactly correctly, which is the, which is the skill and the difficulty, is that it is liberating an inner depth. <coughs> And that's why we pointed out before that wine obeys the rules of the spiritual world and not the physical world. Unlike all other physical substances, you know, the general rule in, this, in the physical world is that things get worse with time. They wear down, they grind down with time. And things in the spiritual world get better with time. Like wisdom. But wine gets better with time in controverting the rule of the physical world. There's one physical substance that gets better with time. Because it's an avenue of access into the spiritual world. So it obeys those rules. But the word sod which means a secret is the, <coughs> the word that's used for the deeper wisdom. There are other terms as well. One of the other terms is emes, haemet, the, the science of truth. The knowledge, the wisdom of truth. And there the are other terminologies as well. But the word sod that means a secret that is the name you know we have a thing called paradise, right? The, the four levels of the orchard. Paradise is a, is a metaphorical orchard. You go for a journey into the orchard. But paradise spells four things. Pshat, Remes, Drush, and Sod. The four letters of Pradesh. Different levels of descent into depth in Torah. The final one, the Samach, is Sod. That means secret. After descending through, peeling off the layers of all the other aspects of Torah wisdom, the deepest one is called Sod, the secret world. The world of, uh, Kabbalistic world, the world of... Now in Torah, whenever we use a word, the word is essential and intrinsic but stay with me carefully, it's important to grasp. A name or a word that's descriptive within Torah is always essentially descriptive. The word sod means a secret. Now what does secret mean? So the unschooled ear, the insensitive ear, thinks that the Kabbalistic world is a world of secret because you don't know it. It's been kept secret. Secret means no one told you. The name is given that secret. We call it a secret world because... What is a secret? Something that they didn't tell you yet. It doesn't mean the knowledge is unavailable, just that no one told you. But sooner or later, if you persevere long enough, perhaps you'll find that old man with a white beard in the corner of the old city somewhere who will tell you the secret, and after that you'll know it. That's fundamentally an error. That's fundamentally. The reason is that you, you must be able to see that if the concept of the secret would mean that it's something that is kept secret, then that would not be intrinsic to the thing itself. Something that is secret for those who haven't heard, but no longer secret to those to whom it's been revealed, is not intrinsically secret. It's just an accident of circumstance that nobody told you yet. So for you it's a secret, but for the one who knows it's not a secret. So what is essential about the description? Nothing. Are we together? The word sod means that it's a secret, in essence it's a secret. It's not that no one told you, nobody could tell you. No matter, even if they're trying to put it into words, it remains a secret. It's that that cannot be communicated. It's not that which has not happened to be communicated yet, because you didn't find somebody will tell you. That's not intrinsic to the the message, that's not intrinsic to the material. The material of the Kabbalistic world is always sod, even when you know it, before and after you've been told. Even if you study the wisdom and even if you know it well, it always remains secret. It's that which cannot be expressed. It cannot only be grasped inwardly. And that's why the Rebbe never tells the Talmud. All he can ever do is push him close enough to the brink so he understands himself. The Gemara says that when the Master teaches the disciple the Kabbalistic secrets, he teaches him that wisdom. It says, He teaches him the means the, the category headings, the overall the overall delineation of the concepts, but he never tells him the detail. So again, the unschooled ear, the the insensitive, un-Jewish, non-Jewishly sensitive ear, hears that it's some sort of a spiritual game. The master tells only a clue, the disciple has to work, that's not what it's meant. What's meant is that there are no words for the master to tell, that the rabbi cannot tell the talmi, there aren't words for those things. All he does is he gives him the crude and clumsy guidelines until the Talmud picks up the inner meaning himself. It's the only way to do it. And therefore the word "sort" is intrinsic to the material. The second reason the second reason that the question of an inner silence is almost impossible to grasp. Not only because of its inner paradox, but because we live in a world that is so full of meaningless noise that purports to be communication. It is almost impossible to hear something that is genuine. We live in a world that is so thick with meaningless. <coughs> it is media. So the word has nothing left. Nobody, nobody takes it seriously in the first place. Those who are those who, those who communicating aren't taken seriously. They have to speak. So they speak. They write. They fill the atmosphere. They, fill, they fill, literally fill the atmosphere all wavelengths, all modalities with completely meaningless words. So there's no, there's hardly an ability for content to be. Now let's see if we can try and, whatever we can do to reverse that uh, trend, which is not the Jewish, it's not the pathway. Let's see if we can begin to open that area. The parashas that we're going through now in the Torah, what we're reading now these weeks of the process of revelation, Exodus. So that gives us an avenue of access into the subject. Let's take one focus there and see if we can see if we can explore that. The maral says, you know, Moses, Moshe Rabenu, right, could not speak well. He had a speech impediment. He had a defect. Right? He couldn't speak well. Kfad pek, kfad lashon. <laughs> He couldn't speak, he couldn't express himself. To the extent that he didn't even deliver his message. Right? Before the Torah was given, he had to speak through a, a mouth. He had to speak through someone else's mouth. His brother Aaron was his. Aaron, your brother, will be your prophet. He will, he will speak out your words. What's the meaning of a man who has an imperfection? in his ability to communicate when he's the greatest prophet who ever lived, which is the essence of expertise in communication. This is not just a fault. We are not talking about somebody who had a peripheral element of damage. We are talking about somebody who was deficient in his essence. The, the, the Torah says, yeah, the, the, the divine presence speaks through the throat of Moshe. The Torah comes down to the world through his his mouth. And he can't speak. What does that mean? (coughs) Later it says he spoke normally. After the Torah was given, after the miracle of Sinai took place, then he spoke normally. If you look carefully the beginning, Sefer Dvarim, the book of Dvarim, Deuteronomy, that book begins with the words, (inaudible) These are the words that Moses spoke means he spoke them. So the commentary say, until then he couldn't speak. After Sinai had happened, with a mirac- miraculous event of, of, of that speech appearing in the world, then he was able to speak. But what does it mean that his natural mode, until that point, was that he couldn't speak? What does that mean? <coughs> so like all Torah, we hear it in its broken version. We hear it in its, in its, in its in it, we don't hear it. We think he had a, a deficiency and imperfection. De maral explains, and it's worth looking up yourself, De maral says that his speech defect was an aspect of his perfection. That means that perhaps, perhaps the greatest manifestation of his perfection was his inability to speak. What does that mean? Let's try to study this subject and understand it. See if we can explain this and many other things as well. There's very little that's more important than this. There's very little that's more important. There's no relationship without communication. And the kind of communication that we try to engage in is almost impossible. Do. Do. The kind of communication that we're trained in, and that we're taught to do, is is so full of duplicity. It is such a... The only way to understand what somebody means now is to listen not to what they're saying, but to what they're not saying. To listen to what's happening between the lines. But to listen to what's being said is guaranteed to be misleading. Let's try to study the source of this issue and <coughs> see if we can see if we can apply it. The subject's like this. The world of dust, the world of inner knowledge, is by definition a world that transcends words. Those things that are grasped in essence cannot be put into words. Those things that can be said in words, what words do, is they package into finite components in the physical world. Words are things that are expressed in the world. When we say words, we're not only talking about things that the mouth says. We're talking about every action of the body. Every action of the body is a speech. First of all, let's get that clear. The concept of dibur, of speech, in Hebrew, the root dabar, that means... In its most classic and specific application, that word means to speak. But what it means literally in Torah terminology means the root of what speech is. The root of what speech is, is taking an idea that lives in abstraction, that has no gilui, that has no revelation in the world, it's an idea, and bringing it into expression in the world. You can do that by any methodology. You can do it just as surely by writing, or by singing, or by dancing. Or by a gesture or a very slight nuance of a gesture as you can by speaking it in words. Only the classic application and the highest one is words. Because they're far more articulate and much more detailed and refined than any other bodily action. And that's why speech occurs in the higher world of the head as opposed to bodily actions that occur in the lower world. For that matter, the tongue it's called a circumcision. It's called the bris. It's called the bris, bris aloshan, the circumcision of the bris of the tongue, the covenant of the tongue. You have a bris miller, which is the circumcision of bris, covenant in the body, and that's parallel in the higher world to the bris aloshan. And the two are parallel. In the higher world, what's formed by the energy of words, which are only just in the physical world, is enough to bring fruits into the world, which is what words do. Bris in the lower world eh, is bringing into the world physical creation. That's why a student is called a child. That's why the Talmud of the Rebbe is called his child. That's why the relationship between master and disciple between Rebbe and Talmud is like parent to child. Literally, halakhically. In fact, there's some aspects where the halakhic relationship between a master and his disciple, Rebbe and Talmud, are primary and closer than between a child and his parent. (coughs) He has some prior obligations to his Torah teacher than he has to his parent. Why? Because the Rebbe brings the child into the higher world. The parent only brings the child into the lower world. The parent utilizing the lower mechanism is bringing the child into the physical world. The Rebbe, using the same creative energy in the higher world, is bringing the t- child into the next world. The physical, the physical creativity of parents is bringing a child into the physical world. The creativity of thorough teaching is bringing a child into the higher world, the next world. But they're both done by the, by the concept of a giving of essence that is bearing fruit in the world of the recipient many examples in the Torah talks about Avram and Sarah the great father and mother of the Jewish people who founded were parents to the Jewish people so it talks about Esanefesh asher haran, the souls that they made in the place called Haran the simple interpretation means the children they had but they didn't have children it means the people they taught <laughs> but whatever action it is that's expressed in the world it's an expression in the external world of an inner essence. And any time you take an idea, something that has no revelation, that is conceived in the world of consciousness, and you bring it into expression in the world, whether it's in words, in writing, or in speech, or in actions, that's called dabar. The transition, the transmission from the higher world into the world of expression, that's, called, that's why speech is formed in the throat. That's why the organ of connection, is a essential ideas, the organ of connection of higher and lower worlds is the neck. Your neck is not there to keep your head attached. Not necessary for that. You could have been built like this and you could have walked around like this. (laughs) The neck is not there to keep your head attached. The neck is there to transmit the energies, the spine, the nerves. All the functions of the neck are functions of transmitting all organs in the neck. I'm not going now into the medical details. But the organs in the neck are placed there specifically because that's the place that connects the world of abstract ideation, into the world of expression. And that's why the root of speech, which is the voice, is, for, is located in the, in the throat. Because, because the idea of speech is taking that which is in the high world and bringing it down into the mechanism of expression. And therefore, the junction between those two worlds, that's the throat. In the Kabbalistic writings, this part of the body is called Moshe. This part of the body, the front of the throat, is called Moshe. Why? Because the world of the neck is the connection between higher and lower worlds. The front of any organ is always the side of its spiritual elevation and perfection. The back of any structure is always the side of its darkness, negativity, the side of excretion, the side of unrecognizability. That's always the back. In Hebrew the achorayim, achorayim means the back. It's the same word in Hebrew as elohim acherim, which means false gods. Acher, meaning strange, in Hebrew, is the same as achor. In Hebrew, in English, you don't have that. Achor in English means the back of. And strangeness or unfamiliarity is acher in Hebrew. So the same lack of recognition. yet Lack of connection and relationship. Is what the back is. This front of the neck, in those writings, is called Moshe. It's called the Kohen Godel. It has other names all referring to the same thing. Because he is the voice through which, he is the throat through which the Torah speaks. And it should be obvious that this part of the body, which is the back of the neck, which is a negative side of the same faculty, that's called ha'oref in Hebrew. Ha'oreth the back of the neck. The letters of the back of the neck spelled backwards spelled paro, pharaoh. This is Moshe which is bringing the voice of the spiritual into the world. And the back of the same what should be the level of communication but which blocks it is Pharaoh who says, Mi Hashem, I don't, I don't know who he is. Moshe brings the knowledge of the divine and the spiritual into the world, and Paroi, which is a negative manifestation, his enemy, he blocks that process in the world. In this process, the essence, we've discussed many aspects of this process before, but the one to grasp now is that this process of taking the world of inner knowledge, what we call the das? we discussed the das on a previous occasion, which means intrinsic and inner knowledge, genuine knowledge, not technical knowledge, not measured and finite knowledge, mathematical and, and registration of senses, but inner knowledge, essential knowledge, consciousness, the knowledge of the self, for example, that, that world, when, when it needs to be communicated, has to be brought down through a junction, an interface, into expression. And the problem is that that cannot be done. Yeah. Let's try and grasp this. That cannot be done. The world of knowledge is a world of infinite knowledge. When things are grasped, in co- again, these words are extremely clumsy. But you'll forgive me. No. That's not my, not only my inarticulate nature, it, it, it's the subject. These things are grasped as they are. The way a thing is grasped has no words. The way you know a thing has no words. And in fact, you don't think of it in words. You don't know what you know in words. You know it because you know it. But it's when you communicate it, you need to find the words. And that's where the problem arises. Example. Let's try and understand this. Again, you need to understand it inwardly. The words, are not, the words will break the concept. It needs to be understood beyond the words. For example, how do you grasp yourself? You don't have a word for yourself if you're psychologically normal. You don't grasp yourself through your name. You don't think of yourself as your name. Do you? You know who you are as who you are. But I need your name. Name is a word that's an expression of essence to the external. That's what it is. Hashem's name for example which is what we deal with we only deal with his name we call him Hashem it means the name it's not a euphemism people think we say Hashem because we can't say the name so we say the name that's not a euphemism it's much more than that it is the essence of what his name is is that it is a name that's the essence of what it is because a name is that in Hebrew the word name is Shem Shem means there Shem in Hebrew means there In one sense it is that which is projected from self. In another sense it means the expression of ultimate destination. Your name is your essence and it's where you're going to, which is who you are. That's why the word shame, which means name and sham, is the source and the root of the word neshama. Neshama means the soul. So it's based on the root shame, which means the essence, because the soul level is the essence of the human being. But a name is used as an expression to the exterior. You don't need a name for yourself. It's others who need your name. That, that's the handle that they use to get a hold of you. <coughs> of course, that's the, the ultimate source of that is Hashem's name and what it means. So the consciousness that you have of yourself is beyond words and explanations. You don't need to rationalize it or talk to yourself about it. You know it as it is. And you know it thoroughly and, not, and, and deeply. But to express it in, in externality, you need to bring it out into words. And that's impossible. Because you can never find the words, no matter how many words you need, <coughs> No matter how many words you use, you can never express, never mind the essence of the thing, let alone that, but you can't even express your consciousness of the thing in words. You'll notice that when you get into those situations where it's very important to you to explain the essence of a thing and how you grasp it, there's a great frustration. First of all, the origin of the frustration is that there's a deep need to communicate it. And the more beautiful and potent and personal it is, the more urgent the need to share it with somebody who's a part of you or to find a person who could be part of you so you can, is a tremendous, you see a scene of tremendous beauty, or something that moves you greatly. The first urge within us is to need to project that and share it. And when you try to share it, you're aware from the beginning that you can't possibly convey the experience. And what happens is you try to say it this way and that way, and, and you realize the more words you say, the more hopeless it's becoming. And in fact, if you need to convey something deep and personal to someone else, If you need to speak about it to convey it, and if you need to speak a lot, you might as well forget about it. Mm -hmm. If you need to speak a great deal to convey it, then there's no way that you'll get it across. The only way you can ever communicate something, the only way you can ever communicate something at that level, is when you're communicating to a person who knows what you mean anyway. Mm -hmm. And then you don't have to say it in the first place. Then there's a chance of communication. Mm -hmm. And people know each other deeply. sometimes the only way to do it is, is, is to listen to the words but to listen to our sources say that women have a natural talent in this area so it's a natural women have a talent men are men are men are not just not talented in this area men are categorically hopeless in this area <laughs> it's probably a misprint but that's <laughs> the point is that there's a, there's a feature of a woman's... of the female pole does express itself even in this battered and abnormal generation. It does th- nevertheless often express itself in our sources. clearly expresses itself in a, in a woman's talent. The ability to listen, but listen inwardly. Despite words, or without words, whatever the manifestations are, are giving clues of something inside. The wo- a woman listens to her children, for example... The talent of not listening to the words, but listening to what's being said inside those words. Very often the opposite to what's being expressed a- externally. A-, a skilled counselor who develops that faculty, and it's a, it's a highly, it's not, not simple. It requires an annulment of ego, a nulling of ego, an ability to take out your laying your own personality on top of what it is. Otherwise, you, all you ever hear is what you want to hear. Not what's being said. But when you can do that and take yourself out and be a genuine receiver... Then you can hear what's being said. is often exactly opposite to what the words are saying. The sources for this, we have plenty of sources for it. Tonight's not the, the time to discuss the, the womanly aspect of this in particular. But our sources say that Sarah for example, Sarah, was able to shed insight into a child that Avram Avinu himself didn't have, one of the greatest people who ever lived. In the next generation, Yitzhak, right? Yitzchak and Rivka. Rivka knew about her children. What even the great prophet, Yitzchak did not know. She knew. There are sources that say that if a man brings a friend home whom his wife does not like, he should not relate to that person anymore. Even if she can't tell him why. Because she's credited with a gift of insight into personality that goes beyond, in many Western modes, that's belittled Then, what do you mean exactly? Explain, explain. Can't explain. Yeah, it's nonsense. Not true, it's Not so. Not so. The reason it is like this and what it <laughs> connects to female it's not not for now, but there's a method of educating children. It's not widely known or practised, but there's a method of teaching children who have inability to communicate or children with severe disabilities and problems. And the children aren't taught the formalities of expression like A B C they taught the sounds. Instead of teaching a child, this is an A, where the child is taught R, ah, which is openness, and, not, and, and, and they're taught as a closedness. And these children who have no ability to communicate in technical terms, but they can hear, they can hear people. It's interesting to see. So the problem is that when that which is known and extends beyond any finite boundaries needs to be expressed, it has to be packaged in that which has finite boundaries. And by definition that cannot be done. And that's where the breakdown occurs. That's where the pain, the frustration occurs. And it's compounded by being a character, being a personality, or developing one's character into a person who needs to speak. If you need to speak and you don't have the depth to be able to be silent, and to be able to hear and hold in your own inner silence. So then you have a life of frustration because the need is to spit it out all the time. The <laughs> spitting out never adequate. So you become a person who lives only in, in what we call Misafah from the from the lip and out. The first obligation in the spiritual path, the first obligation of being a Jew, true to Torah and its authentic expression, is to have a well of depth that's hidden within. That goes way beyond that which you could say. That when people get to know you, they know that whatever you say is only an indication of how much more there is that's hidden that couldn't be said. That's a person worth knowing. When you meet someone new, they have a new relationship, and you sit down with that person, in 20 minutes, they tell you all about themselves. All about themselves. They, I mean, people like that. They'll take <laughs> pains to tell you. In 20 minutes, they give a full description of who they are. That's who they are. 20 minutes of speak. That's it. Nothing left. It successfully spat out and that's all. A genuine relationship with a real person, somebody who's, where there's someone at home, <laughs> is a person where the communication begins and as, as you get to know that which you did not know before about that person, you begin to get the feeling and the realization that there's a lot more that you weren't aware existed. And as that begins to reveal itself, the first thing that it does is open your awareness that there's a great deal more than that. That's a relationship. That's a relationship that will never end. That's a relationship, but it's a privacy. That's, that's what we call sneers. It's a woman's characteristic. Sneers means a hiddenness, a modesty. Modesty doesn't mean only that there's no outer expression, modesty means that there's an inwardness to God. A person who's silent because they have nothing at all to say, that, that's, not, that's not spiritual debt, that's just emptiness. That all, all, what will resound there is an echo. <laughs> A person who is a nobody and says they're, they're a nobody. They're not being modest, they're just being true. You know, <laughs> Modesty means having content and, and being... <coughs> the kind of person that you want to know, the kind of person with whom a genuine friendship or a genuine relationship is built, is one that, that where no speech is necessary. They say that in the last generation, I've loved you once, he went to visit the Briskarov, he came from wherever it was, for the neighbor came to visit the Briskarov, <coughs> and he walked into the sukkah. and he said, and he said, and he sat down, and they spent half an hour without a word. He sat down. And after half an hour, he got up and greeted him, and he greeted him and he walked out, and people say that it was an electric communication. <laughs> They say, after the Briscoe said, that, so that's what Muslim means. That's what Jewish character building means. And so the problem is that there needs to be that well of depth, of private depth, of silence that needs to be cultivated. How do you cultivate that? How do you build it? How do you build content? And the answer is by learning silence. By learning to hold a thing until it... See if we can feel this out. Rabdesler writes, again it's worth looking up, Rabdesler writes, and he brings from his Rebbe, that if you say, there's a very, very painful thing. A very painful thing, and it's a teacher's problem, and it's the problem of gifted teachers, and it's the problem of people who articulate and communicate easily. He writes that if you say a thing, if something meaningful to you, and you say it over, you lose it. Again, you hear something inspiring. Right? In, in Torah teaching, is a classic issue. A person hears something that's tremendously elevating and inspiring. goes beyond borders. It switches on lights. If you say it, you lose it. Asim Ghazizl wrote that he once waited 25 years to share a remarkable Torah idea with his students because he was afraid that if he articulated it, it he would lose it. And he writes that the only time you may communicate such information is when it has settled into your nature so that it's part of you. But as long as it is still spinning within you in excitement, if you formulate it and bring it out, you lose it. Why? Because before you've expressed it, it excites you and inspires you and illuminates you beyond that which can be expressed. It goes beyond. It's, it reaches into the roots of, of your consciousness at a level beyond words. What happens when you formulate it in words? So you've brought it down into this finite package. You've taken away its, you've taken away its transcendence. <coughs> there are many people who are good communicators, just like people who are sensitive to the world, When they see it, when they see a beautiful scene or some aspect of nature that is very deeply moving, their first urge is to share that. There are people in the world of intellectual beauty that everything they hear that is beautiful, who can I tell? Whom can I tell? There's a need to go and say it over. And the effort sometimes to say, before there's any effort, even any effort to, to, to grasp, to see it bear fruit, to reach into the, into the reaches of consciousness. Such a person is training themselves in how to lose everything that they possess. And if you learn to do it very well, you'll become a person in twenty minutes, you can say all of you. <laughs> you dare not do that. That's not what a human being is. That's a machine. We're not talking here about you know the, you as we be careful here, we're not talking about external, explicit wisdom. Right? There are two faculties of wisdom in the mind. We've been into this before. There's the inner world of Das, what Rabdesla calls the Mabata Pnimi, the inner vision. And there's the outer vision, what we call the outer eye. That outer eye is formed by the senses and the logical faculty. The information that your senses can take in and your mathematical, logical faculty. That, that's the external vision. And there's nothing human about that. A machine can do that. A machine can assimilate facts from the environment. An animal can bring in, take in facts through the senses and make calculations. A machine can do that. Nothing human about that. The inner faculty is the one that knows things as they are. The way, for example, you know your own existence. You don't know yourself because you have external proofs that you've measured. You're in big trouble if that's how you know that you exist. You know you exist as a primary knowledge. That's why, incidentally, there's no formal philosophical proof of one's own existence. Because it's only known in the inner world. That which is known in the outer world can well be expressed and should be expressed. And teachers should know, and people in learning should know, that you've not, understood it, un- you've not understood it until you can express it. In that department, mathematical, logical wisdom, technical wisdom, those things are not <coughs> thoroughly understood until you can express them. That's exactly the department in which that applies. Do you want to know if you've understood a piece of Gemara in its technical aspect? Or a piece of mathematics or logical, engineering, whatever it is. So you must be able to express it. If you can't express it and put it into its form and its structure and its aesthetic structure, you haven't understood it. You try to express it, you'll see the piece is missing. You've been fooling yourself. That's exactly where expression is needed. And, and, but we're, not, we're talking here about the inner knowledge, that which goes beyond, the knowledge that it's true, not the knowledge of its details. To say that 2 plus 2 equals 4 is something you can express and you should express and a machine can do that. But to know that 2 and 2 is 4, to know that there's a truth in that, that grass can never be that can't be spoken out and you only damage it by trying let's see if we can go a little bit beyond let's see if we can see some correlates of this idea you know one of the places you see this is in children The Gemara says that prophecy... We're talking here about something that connects with the prophetic knowledge, the inner knowledge. The Gemma says that prophecy no longer exists in the world. Explicit manifest prophecy no longer exists. The only three places now that prophecy exists, vestiges of prophecy, are in children, dogs, and insane people. In those three areas of vestiges, they're not accessible to us. Because they're fragmented and not coherent. But dogs and insanity... Not for now. But children, what does it mean that children have this, what does this mean? Kind of a fascinating area, amazing thing. So the sources that talk about this, say that when a child is born, the child knows the spiritual world. He knows a lot less than before he was born, because before the child is born, he knows the entirety of the spiritual world. But when a child is born in the world, although he forgets the knowledge he had when he was being formed in the womb, but he knows the spiritual And those things, you can actually see that children, babies, newborn babies, know things. It's not the time now to go into how you can tell, but uh, if you ask me privately, I'll be happy to tell you. You can see they know certain things. As they grow older, they lose that knowledge, and they lose it as they develop the ability to speak. As the child learns how to begin articulating things, exactly to that extent and in that proportion, they lose the inner knowledge. As the skull bones close, you know that a newborn child, you can feel the brain pulsating. That's a physical vestige, a physical manifestation of a connection to a higher world. It's why we wear tefillin here. You wear your tefillin, the correct place of wearing tefillin is the place where, Rashi says clearly, is where the skull of a child is open. Meaning there's no bony closure there. There's a a tefillin where you wear your tefillin is the place where you are opening again. You know what is called in the Kabbalistic writings? P'kiya <laughs> Samoichin. You know what that means? It means the bursting out, the explosive bursting out of the brain, of the core of the brain, into the external world, into the higher world. That's why the Gemara says in the Rambam brings that a man who doesn't put on Tfilin is a particularly severe spiritual, agonizing spiritual situation. More than other positive mitzvahs. Other positive, every mitzvah is important. <coughs> but this is singled out from a particular perspective because you've allowed that bony closure to take place. There's no attempt to reopen that childlike knowledge. At least once a kosher filled fill in. At least, should be every day, at least. In all the old, older generations they wore them constantly. We wore the tefillin all the time. The one or two people still do. It's a very high level to do that. We don't do that today. To wear your filling all day, you have to meticulously clean body. Your body must be meticulously clean, absolutely And uh, the thoughts have to be clean. The way you filling and think things that, even, even secular thoughts, let alone. So we don't do that. It's hard enough for us to maintain yeah, clean, the cleanliness that we need for the hour of dominion. Hard enough for the, for the three minutes of uh, five minutes of shmones, but at least that, but at least at least once a culture pair is filled, at least to open that connection. Women, of course, don't. We, we've explained why women don't do that. We explained it. There's always a connection. There's always a connection. But a man. That's what's needed. But a child who has that space open, so there's a there's a connection, there's a connection. And when the child loses that connection, the child loses yeah, the bones close, and the child loses that knowledge. But they lose it as they gain the ability to speak. So again the insensitive ear thinks that the child knows things, and it so happens that <coughs> as they develop, they forget, and as they develop, they learn to speak. But that's not the case. They lose the knowledge because they learn to speak. Because the more be- you become articulate and you can bring things out into the world, so to that extent they've shrunk. The Maharal says, and demonstrate this beautifully, the, the Gemara says, the Maharal points this out, the Gemara says that a child, a child is, um, an unborn child. The Gemara says that a, an angel, a malach, teaches him the whole Torah. We've discussed this in many other contexts before. He teaches that, means he knows the whole of the spiritual world, he knows his role, he knows the whole of his chalik in Torah. means his own share in what Torah is. Kevin Shenele, when he's born, as the child goes through the birth process, Bam Malach, an angel, the Al-Piv, strikes him on the mouth. The angel strikes him on the mouth and he forgets everything that he knew. And he's born a simple unlearned child who does not know the wisdom that he knew before he was born. So the Maral, with his superconscious insight, he asks the following question. When you wish to make someone forget something, you don't strike them on the mouth, you strike them on the head. The angel comes and strikes the child on the mouth. And that causes him to forget. The blow on the mouth is the gift of speech. The causative agent that, that generates, yeah, that caused the child to forget his inner knowledge, is the gift of speech. It's all it takes, you become articulate, you lose the inner depth. A blow, there's not perhaps the time to go into it in detail, a blow always means, in total thinking... A blow always, striking a blow always means a demonstration of deficiency which is an invitation to grow. But it says in Chazal, for example, it says, <laughs> You don't have any blade of grass. Who does not have an angelic force in the higher world. So that strikes it. And says, <coughs> grow. Meaning that when the, when the Torah wants to express the force, the energy that causes a blade of grass to grow, The way that's expressed is that from a higher world there's a blow. What it means is the striking is a, a a revelation of deficiency. This is where you're deficient. And as soon as the gap of deficiency is revealed there's a striving to grow into that gap. That's what it means. A blow on the mouth means an invitation to grow in this area. And the child develops the ability, the original gift of being able to speak and in that degree the inner knowledge is, is, is lost. You know, what's fascinating is that many people who went through the Holocaust, many people who went through that experience, you speak to their family members, they tell you a remarkable thing. It's a very, very common phenomenon. It's probably more common than not. You speak to people who are, uh, in families of people who survived, speak to the children and their grandchildren, they will very commonly tell you that my grandmother never spoke about it ever. It's a very, very common phenomenon. Never. Not that they didn't speak much. They, ref- they never spoke about it. We could, and not that we, we could never get them to speak about it. Completely closed. People mistakenly think that the reason that those people did not speak about it was because too painful. Too traumatic. Psychological defense. Unwillingness to open that area and feel the scars and the pain, etc. That's not the explanation. That's not the explanation. Maybe that's peripherally relevant Maybe sometimes, maybe yes, maybe not. That's not the issue. The reason that those people never spoke about it wasn't because they didn't want to speak about it, because it was too painful. They never spoke about it because they could not. They were bearing within them a pain that transcended any ability for a human being to grasp and hold. The pain of the experience was greater than they. It has. It has the feeling, the sensation that is greater than you. Where do you start? Where do you start? How do you? Which with which words do you begin? And if you could find the place to start how many weeks would you have to speak and then not succeed? When a person pairs within the, within them the scar of an experience that is indescribable. What human beings could do to other human beings in an organized, calculated, mass So, a person who went through that. The trauma is not because it was very painful. The issue is that there aren't words for those things. <coughs> it's obvious the reverse of this is if you're involved in counseling you have any, you have any counseling type of function or role whether it's as a parent or <coughs> whatever it is professionally you know what the therapy is for someone who has a trauma that's larger than they are speak about it get them to say it when somebody's carrying within them a trauma a pain That is larger than they are. And that's its agony. And that's why it's become dysfunctional. The therapies get them to say it. It's difficult. And you have to lure them into doing it. And at first they... But eventually when it starts to pour out, even if it takes hours, it may take sessions, hours. But eventually what happens is, the pain that was inexpressible, that reached beyond my ability to grasp, and therefore was larger than I am, is not this much talking. This many words, maybe big and very painful and extremely heavy, but this is what it is. It's now you can deal with it. Now it becomes finite. So the concept is that the concept is that the silence, the inner depth has to remain that way. The ability to express it and the process of expressing it is a betrayal. It's a betrayal of that area. Those things that are very precious, very personal, very precious, you feel the betrayal when you express them. Not only because somebody else knows. There's a betrayal in the very saying of those things. And they cease to be what they were before. you take what it was and you reduce it to a snapshot. That's what it is. a photograph. The tragedy is when you're busy doing those things, you don't even see it in the first place. You're so busy trying to take a picture to show that you were there that you never really saw it in the first place. Moses could not speak properly. Moshe Rabbeinu could not speak properly. Not because he had a deficiency. But he was holding in a world where things cannot be put into words. His level of prophecy was that, was such that those things cannot be put into words. He grasped things as they actually are. Those things can't be said in the world. Aaron, his brother, was at a lower level of prophecy. He was able to make that connection. But Moshe was holding in a world where all things are one. Where all details and all particulate elements are melted into the essence of oneness. They transcend their borders infinitely. So how can you say those in the world... That was the measure of His perfection. After the Torah was given, He spoke normally. Why? Because the giving of the Torah means the miracle. The giving of the Torah means the miracle of the infinite wisdom being put into finite words. That's what it is. Torah is infinite wisdom, endless wisdom, that's put into finite words. How is that possible? Discussion. But the essence of it for now is that it's called miracles, called miraculous. When it says that Hashem appeared on the mountain, God appeared? Hashem appeared on Mount Sinai. So to a child it means... Whatever it means, Hashem appeared. But a more sophisticated understanding, it means that the infinite world appeared within the finite. That's what happened. The finite became a, 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 a substrate. The finite became a framework on which the infinite could manifest. That's impossible. That's impossible. It's impossible for the finite to meet the infinite and remain finite. It's impossible. That's why it says that every Jew who stood present at Sinai died. When Hashem spoke, they all died. The Gemara says, their, neshama, their souls flew out to the source and their bodies were blasted back twelve miles. They had to be resuscitated by the next of the debris and they came forward. Hashem spoke again, they died again, they exploded. And for the third of the debris they said to Moshe, it's enough. You hear it and tell us. And it's just good that they did that. But when faced with the essence, so that essence flies out. The giving of the Torah means that Hashem, the infinite, the infinite, came down into the finite, which is miraculous, but it happened. The residue that it left in the world is the Torah, in which infinite depth and wisdom is contained in finite words. After that miracle manifests in the world, then the man of Torah speaks. he was able to speak after that, but only because that miracle had been put into the world. And today the residue of that miracle is that any words can contain anything, <coughs> and that any body can contain the Neshama. That the world which is finite and particulate and run down, and broken down, and descending exponentially, can bear within it a transcendent, infinite neshama. That's what it is. But the way you manifest that is by not saying it. The genuine teacher is showing the student how to see it, not telling him what it is. He's not showing it to him. He's teaching him to see. He's not saying it. He's teaching him to hear. And the basic obligation is to maintain a privacy, is to maintain a depth, that can't be expressed without that. To cultivate silence. Children have to be taught think before you. Mm -hmm. Think about it. If you think about most things that you want to say long enough, not only don't they need to be said, most of them definitely shouldn't. Let me finish with a. Let's finish with a <coughs> incident in Tanakh,
1: <coughs>
0: remarkable incident that we can understand in the light of this of this principle. In we read this uh, we read this in the Aftar of Shmini. There's a description there <coughs> of King David, David Amalech. I don't have time now to go into the full expansion of why it happened to be he. Who teaches this? But let's at least let's at least trace the at least the externality of this, with as much inner depth as we can. Is that King David David HaMelech when he brought the Ark, you know the Aron Kodesh, the Ark of the Covenant, when he brought it up to Jerusalem in preparation for housing it in the Temple, which he prepared for, which his son King Solomon Shlomo HaMelech built. So it says that when David brought the Ark. And again, you have to understand every detail here. The story, the Aaron Kurdish, the Ark, is that physical structure that contains an infinite transcendence inside. You're talking about a box. But inside it is Torah. And that's why it says that it had no measure. The Aaron has no measure. The Aaron Kurdish has certain measurement, and it's bigger than the housing that they built for it. The Kodesh, Kodesh in the inner sanctum in the temple, has certain measurements. The Aaron has certain measurements. It is bigger <coughs> than its home, and yet it goes inside. The larger fits inside, the smaller. It's beyond measure. It doesn't mean the space expanded or that the Arun shrank. Either one would invalidate both of those. They have to be specific measurements. The Arun retains its measurements. The Kodesh Kadashim retains its size. It is bigger than where it fits, and yet it fits inside. All this is exactly relevant to... But what happened was this. As he brought up the Arun on the journey to Yisholayim, he was dancing in front of it in tremendous expression of joy. It says, David, He was dancing with tremendous power in front of Hashem. In a a transcendent expression of joy at bringing the Aaron closer to Yerushalayim. So the Tanakh, it says there, the Navi says that Michal, his wife, at that time was married to Michal. She was the daughter of Saul. She was looking out the window and she despised him in her heart Michal was one of the greatest women who ever lived she was no less than the daughter of King Saul incidentally she wore Philip incidentally she wore Philip she saw him from the window and she despised him when he came home she greeted him with a criticism she said this, you have to hear every word here. It's worth looking up again yourself and standing on the words. She said to him, in the eyes of the maidservants in the street, you lowered yourself, you, you, you belittled yourself, you exposed yourself. And she used very sharp language. In fact, the end of her criticism, she says to him, not only did you expose yourself, you, 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 you behaved in an unbecoming fashion, you, you revealed yourself, but she went as far as to say, Ke'echad ha-reikim. That is very, very sharp. That means like one of the empty fellows. Reik in Hebrew means empty. ha like one of the empty fellows. That is a very, very sharp criticism. And David responded, David says to her, Una kalesi oed mizais, I will lower myself even more than this. In the eyes of the same maids, whom you say I expose myself, in honor of Hashem, I will reveal even more. I'll go even, even further. And then it's, the, the incident concludes there. The novice says, Michal, hay Allah, she never had a child until the day of her death. Add in Moisa, it says, until the day of her death, she never brought a child into the world. And before she said, it means she died in childbirth. It means until the day of her death. Literally like all words in Tanakh. It's not just poetic and metaphorical. It means until the day she died. On that day she had a child. She, it, it cost her life to bring a child into the world. What's going on? What's going on? Tanakh is concerned with the Navi, Shmuel. Samuel, the great prophet, is concerned with telling us that there's an argument in husband and wife. He's dancing in the street. She thought Yahweh did it. You could see his ankles. You could see his knees. The yeah. honor of the king. What's going on? All words of Torah are dvarim b'etzen. That's the principle. Maral pointed points it out again and again. All words of Torah are dvarim b'etzen. They're intrinsic and essential. They go to the root of creation. They go to the root of what the human soul is. There's not peripheral, accidental, coincidental happenstance. There's no, nothing like that in Tanakh. What is this discussion? What was she criticizing? What was his response? Why was she wrong on this occasion? And it could be that she, being a woman, could be that being a woman, she was held to a higher, higher standard. <coughs> and being a wife, who's the one person on earth who genuinely knows a husband, it doesn't require any words on his behalf, Could be that, and perhaps we can even understand, even perhaps why her life was the price of bringing a new life into the world. The explanation is like this. I heard this from my Rebbe. When she saw him dancing in the street, she wasn't concerned with the fact that you could see his ankles. That's That's not what was being exposed. What she was concerned about is that you could see his soul. That's what was being exposed. You have to understand that when David danced, we're not talking about jumping up and down. We're talking about David, King David. We're talking about a luminescent, incandescent, prophetic figure. The messianic figure. The one who contains and embodies within, within him all human souls. When he danced, you may be sure that it was pure spiritual fire. Dance is an expression of internality. Words are an articulate refined, elevated expression of internality. But dance is an expression. The whole body expresses what the internality is. When David danced, it's not a question of the body moving in the world. It's a question of the externality. Do you know what dance is? Gemara says you can tell who a man is by the way he walks. I know somebody who's a student of a great man. He watches him walk. He goes to where the man lives and he stands across the street to watch him walk. Because when this, when this man thinks, he walks up and down outside. He stands there to watch him walk. That's his lesson. You can tell a person's refinement from the way he walks. <coughs> That's part of SNIS, is the way the body presents itself, something, a tremendous revelation. Dance is a bursting forth of the inner content in physical expression. You know what Rikud means in Hebrew? You know what ricud means? The word rikud means dancing. It also means sifting. You know that? Sifting. That the process of dance is not just it's not just graphic. Rikud means that in the process of of movement is brought out. The spiritual and the physical is separated. That's what it means. That's what dance is. And that's why dance is so dangerous. If done wrongly, it can be the ultimate expression of physicality. Very, very low expression of physicality. But if it's done right, it can be a tremendous expression of spirituality. Have you ever seen dance? That is Spiritual. Ever seen people with Torah greatness dancing? There's nothing physical at all about it. Tremendous refinement and elevation. Her accusation was that when he danced, you could see too much. What she meant was, when you express yourself in the world, the first obligation of Torah greatness and of Torah development, of being a Jew, is that whatever you express, there must be more. That whatever you express in the world, if you don't have a secret well of depth that goes far beyond what you can express in the world, then you've spat yourself out. If you dance in those Jerusalem streets in such a way that everybody can see all that you are, it must have been indescribable his dance. It must have been close to seeing prophecy, to experience prophecy. But they saw the Messianic Neshama. And she she said, exactly, listen to the words. You emptied yourself. She didn't insult him like one of the empty fellows. You did not accuse King David of being like one of the louts who hang around on street corners. She didn't mean that. She meant, you emptied yourself. You expressed yourself to the extent that there was nothing left. That's unforgivable. Because if you can bring yourself all into the world, where's your infinite connection? And David said to him, you know what his answer was? You think that's all there is? You think that's all there is? what was revealed out there that you took to be everything was only the beginning of a revelation that wasn't all there is there's far more (laughs) that you didn't even perceive was being hidden and it could be for that reason that to bring revelation into the world the greatest bring a life into the world so she had to be emptied of life could be it's possible But these are people beyond our level of ability to to know, to assess, and the message that we have to take home right, is the message of how to be quiet, <coughs> to be quiet, it's how to hear and hold and not express any need to express that has to come that has to come long after the the message, the essence has made contact with the personality till it becomes safely part of the fiber of one's being, then one judiciously chooses that which is calculated to generate that to be seed, to the planting of a seed that is not simply a spitting out of that which is lifeless, but the generating of a seed that in the privacy of silence can grow